Let's pray. Oh, Father, um, well, first of all, we recognize that you are God and we are not. You are the God of the universe, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the Bible and no other God. And you are the God that we serve. You are the God that we desire to learn about, to grow in our knowledge of, and then the God that we desire to serve. And so you are the God we are praying to, and so we recognize that it is you and only you who has created us and you and only you who love us with that unconditional heart of love. We thank you that you you are our creator and the lover of our souls, your word tells us. And so we approach you now, God. We approach your throne of grace in the name of Jesus by the leading and power of the Holy Spirit. We also proclaim... And understand, God, as your church, as followers of your son Jesus, that the only way that we can even close our eyes and and speak with you now, the Lord of the universe, is because of Jesus. And so we thank you for him above all else, for his work on the cross to bring us new life and to allow us to enter into a relationship with you. Thank you, Father, that there are no obstacles between us and you anymore. In the name of Jesus, for those of us who call on his name and believe in him and him alone for salvation. Father, we pray to you now and ask that you would bless our gathering. Bless our reading and hearing and discussion of your word. Bless our time of worship through song. Bless our fellowship outside after this gathering. Bless our hearts, Lord. Give us ears to hear. Give us eyes, spiritual eyes, to see who you are and who we are in your sight. Father, it is, again, a great privilege to be in your presence, to meet with you. And now as we open your word together... May we be in awe of it. Words that perhaps we have read many times. God, we know that they are alive and that they can speak to us afresh and in a new way this morning. Would you do that for us through your Holy Spirit, Father God? And we do it all for the glory of you. We do it in the name of of your Son, our Savior, the Messiah, Jesus. And we do it not of our own strength, but through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Psalm 110. It is a psalm of David. It is a messianic psalm in that it talks about our Messiah. It is a royal psalm in that it was written by the king often sung in the king's court. You will see of these just quick and brief but profound seven verses that Psalm 110 brings our focus immediately and directly to the Messiah, the one who came and the one who is to come. The Lord says to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. Your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. Psalm 110. I will read that again uh, before we are done. But Psalm 110, like all the other Psalms, has poetry. Did you see the poetry there? Remember, this is poetry that was put to music in order to be sung. And so let's, let's just recap and refresh what we're doing here looking at the Psalms, and then we'll get into this particular Psalm. You remember... Um, the Psalms, there's 150 of them in the book. They were compiled and written, uh, well, written, I should say, over the course of about a thousand years. Can you imagine that? Let's just step back and think about that for a second. This is a book that was written, these individual Psalms, by a number of different writers over the course of a thousand years. I don't even think we have a true perspective on what a thousand years is like. Our country has been here for 250, maybe 300 years. Some of the older civilizations have been around for a long time, but a thousand years. By many different writers, most of the Psalms written by King David. You remember David of David and Goliath fame. We know King David, who was just a boy when he became king. We know about all of his exploits, but still... A man after God's own heart because God uses people who are imperfect. Because there are no perfect people except Jesus. And we can say not only amen, but thank God for that, that he chooses to use imperfect people. And so he chose to to use David to write the majority of these psalms, and he wrote this one. There are different kinds of psalms, many different kinds, but... There are psalms of lament, which means they are songs that were written to lament sin, to lament um, the seemingly uh, distant God, to lament a broken heart, to lament um, um, you know a confusion about what God is doing, uh, lament about enemies that seem to to have the upper hand. But there are songs that are just called hymns, that are songs of praise, which we looked at recently. Songs that, psalms that just simply praise God for who He is. And there are psalms that are called psalms of thanksgiving, right? Let us enter His courts with thanksgiving, right? Enter His gates with thanksgiving, His courts with praise, a psalm like that where we just thank God for who He is. There are royal psalms like this one, which also is a messianic psalm. This one has a few different themes going on. But my point is there are all different kinds of psalms because there are all different kinds of poetry. But here's what's most important about that, church, and then we'll get into this one. Here's the application for us in this part. We can come to God, and this is important. 
The Psalms teach us and remind us that we can come before a holy God in the name of Jesus under any circumstance. No matter what is going on in your life, no matter how you are feeling, no matter where you emotionally, no matter where your walk is spiritually with the Lord, whether in good times or bad, as we say, whether on the hilltop or in the valley, whether it's during the, the brightest sunshine or the darkest days, the darkest night in your life, you can still come to God. Because we see every emotion played out in the Psalms. Every kind of life situation that we could find ourselves in is represented in the Psalms. Church, we're only going to go through this in eight weeks and, and, and look at eight different Psalms as representation. I encourage you. Do you want to improve your prayer life? and improve your your worshipfulness to God, read the Psalms. The Psalms will help you to pray. Do you ever, do you ever start praying and, and you, you realize, man, I keep praying the same thing. I use the same phrases, the same words. All my prayers kind of sound the same. I've been there plenty of times. I guarantee you, if you read through the Psalms, meditate on them, say them out loud back to God as prayers and worship, I guarantee you they will help to uplift you and encourage you, but not only that, they will help to enrich your prayer life and your understanding uh, and and, and, and create um, a desire, a renewed desire to worship God. The Psalms are wonderful for that because there are Psalms for every kind of situation in life we can come to, every emotion that you might feel like. Uh, that you're that you're experiencing so the psalms are a beautiful resource for us because they were simply songs written that's what really the psalm means it's a it's a poem put to music this was the hebrew songbook this was the hebrew songbook most of these psalms were put to music so they could sing them so there's a lot of poetry here. I mean, in this psalm, it talks about young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. When the last time you got up early in the morning and said, look at all the dew. It's like from the morning's womb. When's the last time you said that? It's very poetic. It's beautiful, but it gives you a perspective. See, that's what uh, one of the beautiful things about the psalms. And so... Um, We are looking at one of these particular psalms. It is written by David. It's called a royal psalm, not only because David wrote it, because he would have uh, used it in his court, in the king's court, but it is also a messianic psalm. What we mean by that simply is this. Prophetically, it points to the coming Messiah. Because remember when this was written, right, way before Jesus, maybe a thousand years, this one before Jesus, a thousand years even. So centuries before Jesus was even born, King David wrote about the Messiah, right? And so um, it's a beautiful psalm to look at because it points us right to Jesus. And it's going to remind us about three things in particular about the identity of Jesus, that he is a king, that he is a priest, and he is a judge, right? A, A king, a priest, and a judge. So there's a great three-point sermon there, isn't it? If you remember nothing else, remember that this psalm reminds us and teaches us three things about the identity of the Messiah, that he is king, he is and will be, that he is priest, he is and will be, and that he is judge, he is and will be, because he is coming again. 
So he is king and he is priest and he is judge. But it's really important we understand that this psalm, the church, gives us three very important aspects of his identity. Because we don't ever want to have a mistaken identity about Jesus. Am I right? I mean, so many things can distract us, right? In this world, in our life, especially the little things, distract us from seeing Jesus for who he really is. And especially if we don't um, look at the word of God, we will never understand truly who our God is. Now, this morning, I had a very distracting experience. I mean, we can get distracted by even the littlest things, right? Especially when we're talking about knowing who, who the God of the universe is, our God, and the Messiah that he sent, the Lord Jesus. So this morning, you know, every, every morning's a little different. Every Sunday morning's a little different. I don't know what your Sunday morning was like today, but maybe you got up and you saw the sun shining and you love the warmth and you're like, yeah, it's going to be 92 degrees today. Yes. And I have to go to church and wear my mask. Yes. <laughs> Maybe you just had a, a great start and you've been feeling that way. And what a blessing that is. And we thank God for that. But maybe you woke up in a lousy mood and you got even worse as the morning went on. But thank God that you're here. Because I trust that the Lord will encourage you. No matter what your experience was. I woke up this morning having slept for three hours. I don't know what it was. I, I, um, I just couldn't fall asleep. And you know when you're kind of in and out of sleep and you feel like, oh, maybe you slept eight hours and you look and you're like, it's been 10 minutes. You hate that frustration, right? And so it was about three o'clock in the morning after laying there. I thought I dozed off. I didn't. I finally looked at my clock. I was afraid to. I looked at my phone three o'clock. So finally, at some point around three o'clock, I got to sleep. My alarm was set for six o'clock. And then the worst thing happens. This is the worst thing that can happen in the morning. You wake up a few minutes before your alarm goes off. Is that the worst? I could have had three more minutes of sleep. And so because I think I was afraid I was going to oversleep because I knew I only got three hours of sleep. And so that was frustrating. So I turned my alarm off and I start to wake up and you feel like you didn't even get any sleep, right? said, boy, okay, I can't wait to have that cup of coffee. So this morning I planned to to go to Dunkin' Donuts to get some coffee. So I woke up and I walked out to the kitchen to to get some water. And our our wonderful dog, her name is Java, she's 14 years old. She decided she just couldn't wait for me to take her out. And so she went all over the kitchen. And so I had to clean that up. So I was half awake, slept three hours. I'm cleaning up the kitchen floor. And she's just kind of staring into the kitchen like, I know I did something wrong. How's he going to react, right? So I had to be a little merciful. So I took her out, didn't plan to do all that. So got myself dressed and um, I went to the Dunkin' Donuts on the way to church. And and the, the wonderful lady there I see every morning, she handed me the cup of coffee, but the lid wasn't on all the way. And so I go to put it down and, and, and a good amount of it just spilled right on my pants. I was really hot. My first thought is, oh, I got burned. I could sue. No, I'm just joking. (laughs) And so I'm like, oh, I'm going to have a stain on my pants. And it was hot and it was wet. It was like, oh, and that was wasted coffee. That was the worst part of it, right? And she said, oh, did something happen? I said, well, the lid wasn't on. And she didn't really say anything. She said, have a good day. Okay. And that was it. And so all those three things happened this morning. But I get to church and I'm like, man, I just need worship. And we had an amazing time of rehearsal this morning with the band. And it was just so worshipful and everything was just, just, it just worked out smoothly. I said, thank you, God, 
for reminding me how much I enjoy worship and being together with brothers and sisters in the Lord. And God was very generous. God was very generous. And he was just like that little thing. But can't sometimes the little things make a big deal in your day and in your life? But see, doesn't our enemy Satan just love to distract us from what's most important? And it's usually those little things that distract us. But see, we don't ever want to be distracted from understanding truly who the Messiah is. Because that would be the worst kind of distraction. Because when we take our eyes off of God, when we allow anything else to distract us, we will lose hope. And especially, especially today, in all that we're experiencing, we need to cling to hope more than ever before. Amen? The writer of Hebrews says that we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. It's the hope in Jesus that anchors us because when everything else around us is shifting sand and those foundations, those things that that we took for granted and that we counted on when we can no longer count on them and everything is looking so different, don't we have a rock that is immovable? And immutable, meaning unchangeable, that we can stand on. And we have the Word of God, which never changes. It is an absolute truth that no matter what the circumstance of life, no matter what government we live under, no matter what crisis there may be, no matter what culture we find ourselves in around the world, as Christians we have this Word that is unchanging. And it is the Word of a God who is unfailing. And so what do we learn about our God in Psalm 110? Well, we learn three things about his identity because God does not want us to be distracted from the true identity or to even have a case of mistaken identity with God. Have you ever been mistakenly identified as somebody else? Have you ever just maybe, you know, somebody randomly starts talking to you because they thought that you were somebody else, maybe a long lost relative or something? You know what I always get, and I don't know what it says about me, but whenever I'm in a store, people seem to think I work there. And and they they usually don't even say, oh, do you work here? It's kind of just like, "Um, can you check the price on this? Or where is this? And, you know, I want to be helpful, right? Sometimes I'll help them if I know the answer. But I don't know what it is, but I often get mistaken for that. But there was one time when I was okay with being mistaken for somebody else. So it was early on when Claudia and I were in college and dating, and uh, I wanted to surprise her. There was an occasion. It might have been one of our birthdays or an anniversary. But um, anyway, I got tickets for uh, to see a band, a, a live a music uh, show in New York City. And I thought it would be great uh, to surprise her to rent a limousine to take us into the city. You know, I'm in college, I have no money, I figure I might as well buy, you know, rent a limousine, right? That's the way to do it. And so I got these tickets and, and um, you know, I figured, all oh, these are going to be good seats and we'll get a limo. So the limo picked us up and, you know, the limo pulls up in front of the, um, the, the, the theater where the show is. And, of course, there's hundreds of people outside waiting to get in. And I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but it's kind of cool. And so we drove up in the limousine, pull, I didn't even expect it, pulled up right in front of the door. And so I, got, so the guy, I was going to get out. The guy comes around and opens the door for us. And here I get out, and then Claudia gets out, and we're all dressed up. And we're walking, of course, what happens to all the people? They look right at you. And they think, you must either be somebody really important, maybe you're in the band. 
And so everybody looks, and in a way, the sea kind of parted. And everybody just kind of moved in there looking, and we walked right in. I'll be okay with that kind of mistaken identity. Oh, he must be a rock star. For, for, for a time, I'm okay with that. I can deal with that for a night. But that was kind of fun, right? Because they, you know, what were the signs? Well, he got a limousine here. He had a beautiful woman with him. He's walking right in. He must have VIP tickets. You know, th- th- there's got to be something special about this person. But you see, we have to make sure that we know exactly who our God is. If we're going to understand our relationship with him, if we're going to worship him and tell others about him, if we're going to claim the name of Christian as part of who we are, if I'm going to have a tattoo of a cross on my arm forever, then I better understand who this Christ is. And so Psalm 110 that I just read before tells us three things in particular about Jesus the Messiah, that he is a king, a priest, and a judge. I'm going to read it again, and then just briefly for the next few minutes, before we have a time of worship, I want to look at those three things, those three identifying characteristics of the Messiah, that he is king, he is priest, and he is judge. You with me? Okay, let me read this one more time. With that in mind, the Lord says to my Lord, remember this is David writing this, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion, saying, Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Arrayed in holy splendor, your young men will come to you like dew from the morning's womb. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. He will drink from a brook along the way, and so he will lift his head high. A beautiful psalm. So what's going on here? And you probably have a lot of questions about, wait, what do these words mean? Who, who is Melchizedek? And who are these people that are going to be arrayed in holy splendor? Well, again, this was written by David. He received a vision, or uh, it's often called an oracle. Uh, It's a message from God, simply what it is. So King David received this message from God about the Messiah, about the one that had been promised. And David, especially by the end of his life, he knew that he was not. The Messiah, but what he knew in the Davidic covenant, the promise of God to um, to the people of Israel, that there would always be the king on the throne would be in the line of David. Whenever there was a king, would be of the line of David. So we know the Lord Jesus is of the lineage of David, right? And so that's why uh, we can say that he is the son uh, of God or the son of David, which we're going to see a passage that refers to that in a moment. And so this psalm is all about Jesus. It even gives evidence of the Trinity. Because at the very beginning, there's these curious words, and I'll explain it to you. It says, the Lord says to my Lord. Now we stop right there. So that is David picturing, listen, he's picturing the Father talking to the Son. He's picturing God talking to Jesus. Because in the Hebrew, when it says the Lord, that means Yahweh, the Father, okay, God. The Lord says to my Lord, that Lord, that second word Lord is Adonai, which means like master. Okay, 
So what David is picturing is he's picturing his God talking to the Savior. He's talking to God the Father. Talk, he's picturing God the Father talking to God the Son. See? It's a quite unique picture. And they're in the throne room. And so what does God say to Jesus? Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. See how that makes sense now? God the Father is saying to Jesus, Jesus, you sit at my right hand. You are my son in whom I, in whom I am well pleased. You sit at my right hand until it is time for you to go down to earth finally and defeat your enemies. That's what he's saying. So this psalm is talking about Jesus, but listen, it's talking about Jesus when he comes back. So in this psalm, David is seeing the second coming of Christ. Jesus had already come, and he came as Savior the first time, but he is coming again. Okay, And so that's what is pictured. So David is seeing God the Father, this picture of God the Father talking to God the Son, saying, Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet, which means he will defeat all of his enemies. So there will be victory in Jesus. It goes on to say, the Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. That is Jesus ruling with his scepter from Zion. Where is Zion? Zion is another word for Jerusalem. It's another word we see in the Old Testament, especially for Jerusalem. So it pictures God the Father saying to Jesus, one day I will send you back to earth. You will rule in an earthly kingdom from the throne of David, that throne because of the Davidic covenant I made with him. And you will rule from that throne with the scepter that I give you in the holy city of Jerusalem. He goes on to say, you're going to rule right in the midst of your enemies. And your troops will be willing on your day of battle, arrayed in holy splendor. And that's what he talks about, the young men coming to you. Do you know who he's talking about there? He's talking about you. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about believers in the Lord Jesus who will be caught up one day in the air with him. What we call the rapture, that's the next thing to happen in the prophetic timeline. The rapture of the church. And then after the seven years of tribulation, we see Jesus returning to rule and reign on earth, but he is coming back with his troops. That's us. So we are going to be the ones arrayed in holy splendor. New bodies, new clothes, arrayed in holy splendor. So we'll be saying that to each other, I think, as we return with Jesus. Boy, you you look... You are just arrayed in holy splendor today. How about that? See, we're going to come back and rule and reign with him. There's plenty of scriptures that talk about that. So in this prophetic psalm written so many years ago, it pictures God the Father talking to Jesus, saying, one day I'm going to send you back to earth to rule and reign as um, the rightful king in your kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and all of your saints, your followers, are going to go back with you They're going to be arrayed in holy splendor. They're going to be ready to go. Like young men, like the dew, like young men, um, in in great numbers, uh, like from the morning's womb, which I think is just a beautiful poetic way of saying, listen, of saying this is for you and I, that we're going to be ready. We're looking forward to that day that we get to return with Christ and and to to be his troops and and, and to, to do whatever he calls us to do. But that is us right there in Psalm 110. 
And then it goes on to say, the few last verses, the Lord has sworn, will not change his mind. Isn't that a beautiful thing? God doesn't change his mind. He swore an oath. He made the Davidic covenant in particular that the king would always be of the line of David. And so Jesus is, the Messiah is. The promise is that the Messiah will rule and reign. He will, he will crush and conquer all of his enemies. And it says that God won't change his mind. He has sworn that. And so we stop right there for a moment. So the first thing we see that Jesus, the Messiah, is a king. He will rule one day on an earthly kingdom from Zion, from Jerusalem. He now sits at the right hand of the Father, but he will then sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem. Do you see that? So he is a king. Can we call him king now? Yes. But he will be a king on this earth one day. That's what Scripture teaches us. And we get to rule with him. Is that beautiful? That should be encouraging to us. So the first thing we learn is that um, Jesus, the Messiah, the coming one, is a king and will come back to rule as a king. He is now, right now as we speak, he is, as he ascended to heaven, right? That he uh, is the son waiting for the father's instructions. He is the prince of peace. He is the son waiting for the father to say, now is the time. Did you ever sort of like hear about all the news and just say, God, is it time? (laughs) Can it please be time right now? Can you tell the son it's time to go make the, is it time for the enemies to, um, to be your footstool so you can rule and reign and, and just first come back for us, finish your judgment. We'll talk about in a minute on this earth and then set up your kingdom because he is king and we will rule with him. So is he the Lord of your life? When you believe in him for, for salvation, you then have a choice to make. Are you going to choose to allow him to be Lord? I mean, he is Lord no matter what. But are you going to choose to let him control? Be in control and not yourself. Are you going to allow him to be your Lord, your master? That word in Hebrew, Adonai. Is he going to be your Adonai, your master? You have believed in him for salvation. Now are you going to choose to follow him? See, we say we learn and we grow and we serve. That's the, we learn about him, but then that growing part is saying we're willing to be his disciples to follow him. Are you willing to let him be king of your life? He is king and he is Lord, but will you allow him through submission to the Holy Spirit to lead and to guide you? See, even King David, the king of all the Hebrews, recognized that there was a higher authority. Church, who are you allowing to have authority over your life? Who are you allowing to influence you the most? Is it the person on the news? Is it a politician? Is it somebody in your family? Is it somebody else other than God, first and foremost? God could use many other people to influence us, but how are these people influencing us, right? Is God, first and foremost, your priority as authority? Where do you get your directions from? See, a king also protects his subjects. Are you realizing that you are first and foremost, listen, a citizen of the kingdom of God? That kingdom, which exists in a spiritual way right now to some degree, but will one day be on earth. Are you more kingdom-minded, recognizing what he has called us to be and do? Are you letting the world, the world which is run and ruled, by Satan, who is called the prince of the air. This world system, 
which he has dominion over, allowed by the Father who has ultimate control. But see, who are you letting influence you? Who is the authority in your life? Is it God and his word, or is there something else that you are letting take the place? Because we are first and foremost citizens of heaven. For he is king. Secondly, he is priest. And so he is... um, he has that role of priest. So he's a king, but also a priest. So it says that Jesus, it says right here in um, verse 4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's like the father is saying that to the son. You are a priest forever. There's a difference between the priests of the Old Testament and their function and the, the, the priesthood of Jesus What's that main difference, church? So what is a priest? A priest is someone who is called to represent God before people. Okay, very simply, that's what a priest is. So in the Old Testament, we see the the priests of the the, the tribe of Levi, the Levitical system. We see the the priests representing, they were called and... and, um, and set apart to represent God for the people. So they would be the ones to bring offerings and, right, to bring offerings to God and to bring sacrifices to God on behalf of the people. But see, the writer of Hebrews talks all about Melchizedek and about Jesus' priesthood. But here's the big difference. Jesus once and for all offered a sacrifice to God the Father on behalf of the people, us. You know what that sacrifice was? himself. When the priest had to kill an animal or offer up a a, a grain offering, they had to do that over and over again because that was the sacrificial system. But God said, I am finally sending Jesus, the, the, the promised Messiah, to be that Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, the one and final sacrifice, church, and that was Jesus. So in his priesthood, He sacrificed once and for all. That's why it says he is a priest forever. Not according to the the Aaronic priest, the the priest of Aaron. See, in in that line. And David is recognizing that too. God is giving that message to King David as well. See, back in the day, especially the kings would not be priests and the priests would not be kings. But Jesus and Jesus alone was king and priest. However... There was this other curious character from the Old Testament who was a king and who was a priest, the only other one. We read about him in Genesis. His name is Melchizedek. How about that for a name? Name your next kid, Melchizedek. But it says, God says, you're a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We we don't have time to look at all the scriptures, but you can read about them in Hebrews. The order of Melchizedek, Hebrews 6 and 7, those chapters. But what does it simply mean? Melchizedek, his name means king of righteousness, okay, was a king of Salem, which was the name of Jerusalem before it was known as Jerusalem. This is way back in, in early Genesis, okay? Uh, we read about him in um, uh, Genesis 14, I think. You read about him, uh, Hebrews 5 and 6, I should say. Anyway, he kind of comes on the scene. It's a very sudden appearance, and then he disappears, 
It's a very strange character, but what do we know about Melchizedek? He was a king because he was the king of Salem, God says, the, the word of God says, meaning Jerusalem. But he was also a priest because you remember the interaction was between Melchizedek and Abraham. It was actually Abram. It was even before his name was Abraham. Abram had just won a great battle. And so on his way back from the battle and all of his spoils, he meets Melchizedek, who kind of appears out of nowhere and then disappears. But Abram offers a sacrifice to him, gives him a tenth that says a tithe of all the spoils. And so that means that he was a priest, but he was also a king, see? And Abram recognized that. And so then Melchizedek then offers that up back to God as a priest would. But then we see him disappear. But then we really see him mentioned again, especially by the writer of Hebrews, to say Jesus is in that order of Melchizedek, meaning he is a king and a priest, but no one ever else was like that. But Jesus is greater. His priesthood is greater than Melchizedek because Melchizedek was just a man. But Jesus is God himself. And see, there is... um, this wonderful back and forth of Jesus and, um, and the Pharisees. It's in Matthew 22. And it's relevant here because this is one of the, the passages in the New Testament where Psalm 110 is referenced. Okay, it's quoted. And so it's quoted by Jesus himself, the Messiah was talking about. Isn't that beautiful? Psalm 110, written like a thousand years earlier, talking about Jesus. And now Jesus is quoting this, this psalm about himself. Is that cool? And so here it says in Matthew 22, verses 41 to 45, Jesus is as his back and forth with the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And see, here's what's important to understand, church, is that the Pharisees, they knew about a coming Messiah. They knew their Old Testament. But they didn't think, this is important, they didn't think that the Messiah would be divine. They didn't think that he would be God. They just thought that he would be a great man sent by God to crush enemies and to to sit on the throne and rule. So they had, listen, there was a case of mistaken identity with the, the, the ruling leaders and who Jesus was. And he knew that. And so he asked them this question. Isn't, isn't Jesus good at asking the probing questions? So here's what it says, verse 41, Matthew 22. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, What do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? Well, the son of David, they replied. That's how often the Messiah was called, the son of David. Why? Because he was coming from the line of David. Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Holy Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. See, he quoted Psalm 110 verse 1, Jesus did. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply. And from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Wouldn't that be cool if you could just just silence people? You say one thing and then they never bother you again? Yeah, there's some people you're thinking of like, yeah, if I could just say that one thing. And they never bother me, annoy me again. But what's the beauty of that? See, what he does is he quotes this psalm. And he's saying, look, he's saying to basically to the Pharisees, saying, you don't understand who I am. Yeah, you believe that the Messiah is coming and will be in the line of David. You're right. But you know he's going to also be God. That's, of course, what they finally got Jesus for, for blasphemy, for claiming to be God himself. But Jesus says, if David could sit on his throne, David, who was so revered by the Jewish people and the leaders especially, Jesus says, if he could say... 
The Lord says to my Lord, meaning David had a Lord? David, King David, had a master? There was God, there was the Messiah, Jesus. And so David was saying, the Messiah is my master, because the Lord, God, says to my Lord. So Jesus said, how could David, he revere so much, how could he have a Lord? And so how could he be just his son, meaning just a human being? And they couldn't even answer. So Jesus uses Psalm 110 to prove his divinity, his deity, that he is, in effect, he is actually, I should say, God himself. And so that is an important part of understanding his priesthood. When it says in Psalm 110, he's the order of Melchizedek, that his priesthood is greater and higher. He is king and he is also a priest. And so what does that mean for us? It means he's our priest forever because it says he's the priest forever. Like Melchizedek, who was a type of Christ, some scholars actually believe Melchizedek himself was Jesus. It's called a Christophany, when Christ appears, when, the, the, um, when Jesus, before he came to earth, before his first advent, appeared to somebody else. And so whether he was just, a, Melchizedek was a type, like, you know, symbolically like Christ, or was Christ himself, he represents the fact that we have a great high priest. We have an intercessor, an intermediary. He is the only one we need to go to. That's why we don't pray to saints. That's why we don't pray to dead relatives. We have one go-between, one Savior, one Lord, one King, one great high priest who made one final offering to God on our behalf, and that was him himself. We don't, church, what does that mean for us? We don't need to offer sacrifices, offer ourselves as living sacrifices, Paul says in Romans 12. That's the daily giving up of ourselves. But what this means is we, there is not enough good things we can do. There are not enough things that we can offer and sacrifice to earn salvation. Jesus did it once and for all in himself, the great high priest offering himself. And finally, he is not only king and priest, but he is judge. Because what does Psalm 110 tell us? It tells us that he will one day return. That he will return. And again, this is really important. We see this in context. This psalm is talking about his second coming. After the tribulation, when he returns with us, the saints, to defeat in the battle of Armageddon, I believe, to defeat his enemies, to set up his kingdom for a thousand years. Because it says, the Lord, verses 5, 6, and 7, the Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. He will judge the nations, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Does that sound bad? Does that sound mean of God, that he's going to come back and judge people like that, that that is going to heap up the dead and crushing rulers? Well, church, here is the sobering fact. And as believers, this should motivate us all the more to share the gospel of grace with others that Jesus came the first time as Savior and he offered peace, he offered salvation. We are now in the age of grace because that is what we represent. And that one day, though, one day he will return to this earth to finish judging. You see, God is a God of love because he is love. He is a God of peace, but he is also a God of justice. And there must be punishment for sin. So God's wrath, which is currently in abeyance, 
abeyance, the Holy Spirit, the restrainer, restraining that wrath, one day that Holy Spirit will be taken out, that restraint, and God's wrath will be met on this earth. It sounds like I'm preaching fire and brimstone, right? But it's, that's what the Scripture teaches, church. Now, we as believers don't have to fear that wrath. See, because we are not made for wrath. We are not called to that wrath. But don't we want to share others, share with others the good news about that salvation from that wrath? That temporal wrath and that eternal wrath of God. Because sin must be judged. See, when we call on the name of Jesus and believe in Him alone for salvation, what we're saying is that He has made atonement for our sin, which means, very simply, that the wrath of God towards us has been appeased. Because Jesus took that upon Himself for us. But for all those that don't believe, there is wrath coming to this broken and fallen and sinful earth. And so that is what's pictured here. If you want to know more about it, read Revelation chapter 6 through chapter 19. Jesus said that those words describing the great tribulation to come, which I think we're seeing that we're in the birth pangs of, you cannot predict when it's coming. I believe the church, we won't be here for it, for, for its worst. But those chapters in Revelation 6 to 19 talk all about that great tribulation. Jesus says, listen, it will be a time unlike this earth has ever seen. So if you think things are bad, hey, the Christians, the first century Christians living under Nero in Rome, they thought it was bad. How could that get any worse? 2,000 years later, here we are. But still, the word of God is true. And so he is king. And do we make him Lord of our life? He is priest. Do we pray to him? He is our great intercessor. We can come to him. He is our great high priest. The writer of Hebrews also says we can approach his throne of grace with confidence because he's our great high priest, but he's also judge. He will return, and the psalm tells us that he will return when the Father says it's the right time. Even the Son doesn't know the time. Only the Father knows. Jesus said that himself. But when it's time for him to make... Jesus enemies his footstool when it's time for him to come. The victory is already won, but when it's time for him to mete out that judgment and the wrath on all those who do not believe, that will be a day unlike this earth has ever seen. Psalm 110 alludes to it. Other scriptures talk about it. But Jesus is king and priest, but he is also a coming judge. He came as savior. He's returning to judge Hey, there will be judgment for us as believers, our rewards, not for our eternal um, assurance of salvation. We have that. There will be a judgment on what we've done with our life in Christ, right? That's what it says in, in one of the Corinthians books about our, um, our works in Christ being passed through the fire. And if they were not glorifying of God, then they will not pass through and they'll be burned up like wood, hay, and stubble. But if they are glorifying of God in our works in Christ, not to earn our salvation, but what we've done with our salvation, then they will pass through the fire, that fire of judgment, a holy judgment, pass through like silver, gold, and precious stone. And that is our life in Christ. So he is king, he is priest, he is judge. So what do we make of all that? Church, we have a king who is a benevolent king. He is a king who rules now 
in a sense, but will be ruler on earth, and we will be in tow, gladly waiting to be his troops, Psalm 110 says. He is a priest that we can go to with any and all problems and situations because he will intercede for us before the Father. That's what he does as our great high priest. So we can go to his throne with confidence no matter what our sin is, no matter what it is that we need to confess or bring to him or any prayers we have on behalf of others, we bring them to him. But let's remember, he is coming back as judge because God's wrath will not be in abeyance forever. And the scriptures talk all about it. But you know what? It's something that we don't often like to hear or we like to preach about. But you know what? If we don't understand the, prof- the, the prophecy of scripture, the, the, the prophetic books, the prophetic words of God about what's going to happen in the future. You know, Jesus spent a lot of time talking about what it's going to look like, about prophecy, about the end times. So we need to know and understand. Why? So that we don't come before God in a case of mistaken identity. So we know who our God is. We know who our Savior is and what it means for us. That we have a Savior who is King. Are we allowing Him to be Lord and Master of our life? Who is priest? Do we come to Him with anything and everything? And who is judge? Do we tell others to spare them from that temporal and eternal judgment. You know, I heard recently this week um, about some leaders, some world leaders that are talking about what we need right now is a global reset, they're calling it. Because everything just seems so topsy-turvy. We need to reset everything. We need to reset the world's economy and culture and, and everything. And now's the opportunity to do it. And there needs to be, as always, right, we want to be changing and growing and doing good things, of course, seeing where there can be true and real needed transformation. But if you talk about a global reset, why don't you read the scriptures? There is a global reset coming. It might not be the one that we want or looking for, but as believers, we look forward to that day, and it starts with the rapture is what we call it, when Christ returns for us. That should be, uh, give us great hope, because that has traditionally become called the blessed hope, the blessed hope of believers, of Christians, that Jesus is one day returning for us, right? We say amen to that. So church, let's let's end our time just the last few minutes singing songs of worship. Would you stand? And I'm going to pray us into worship now. Well, Father God, um, how grateful we are that we even read in this psalm that you are speaking to your son. And the Lord says to our Lord, just sit here at my right hand until that that time is right that I make your enemies your footstool. God, we don't ever want to take for granted who Jesus is. We don't ever want to misunderstand who he truly is. We just want to know exactly what the word of God tells us about our Lord Jesus, the Messiah, who is our king, who is our great high priest, who is the one who comes to judge. But Father, you are the one who is worthy of all worship and when we sing songs about you and about your son jesus and him being that true man of sorrows who went to the cross to take upon himself your wrath that was meant for us 
we can do none other but then to praise you and say thank you and to sing songs of worship to you. Father, we offer up this time as as we close our gathering together, Lord, I, I pray that we've been transformed by your word, not my words, your word, Father, and that this time of worship would be a great way for us to leave together, singing songs that remind us about your identity. May we never have a case of mistaken identity with you, Jesus, that we sing songs that can remind us over and over about who you are and what a great God we serve.